Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for August 26, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. Returning to Forthright Radio, award-winning science journalist, broadcaster, and author, Gaia Vince has a new book out from Flatiron Press, Nomad Century, How Climate Migration Will Reshape Our World. We last spoke with her in 2020 when her book, Transcendence, How Humans Evolve Through Fire, Language, Beauty, and Time, came out. Her first book, Adventures in the Anthropocene, A Journey to the Heart of the Planet We Made, won the 2015 Royal Society Winton Prize for Science Books, making her the first woman to win that prize outright. We spoke with Gaia Vince via Skype on August 22nd, 2022. Welcome back to Forthright Radio, Gaia Vince. Thank you for joining us again. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Joy. Gaia, our listeners really enjoyed our interview about your book, Transcendence, when it came out just as the COVID pandemic had newly shut us all in. Now you have a new book, Nomad Century. How Climate Migration Will Reshape Our World. It takes a hard and useful look at the current and near future of humanity, as well as our collective nomadic past, and that it not only will, but already does involve the migration of millions, and all too soon, billions of us. This is a really loaded political issue here in the United States as well as Europe. Please lay out some of the realities that led you to write this book, Nomad Century. Yeah, I mean, you say that correctly, that it is a very loaded political question. And I think what's happened is we as a global society, but particularly in the rich world, have allowed the narrative around migration to become this very toxic, almost an apartheid kind of idea of a them and us about migrants. And it's just not true. Right. We are all migrants. Even if we don't migrate ourselves, our ancestors migrated, probably our near family migrated. And certainly we rely on the migrations of our stuff for everything we do. So migration is not this anomaly at all. It's a completely normal human adaptation. And what's happened really in the last century or more is that people have become a bit more sedentary because we rely on these enormous chains, these networks of commodity movements and messaging of each other and all these communications that we have created that do the migrations for us. So instead of traveling in person across country to make these journeys to visit people, I mean, if you read books from the 19th century, as, as I do quite often, like uh, Jane Austen, or I guess, what would it be like Little Women or something? It, in the US. People, when they visited each other, they would just turn up at each other's doorstep and sort of stay for quite a long time because they were quite massive journeys they had to undertake. Now we're so used to being able to visit each other virtually and talk to each other whenever we need to go that everything is prearranged. And so the idea of moving around and moving town or city or moving and staying with other people feels like it's an aberration and it's something that has to be arranged massively in advance. But that's actually quite a new idea, in fact. 
But what I wanted to look at really is the situation that we're facing over the coming decades, because as we're all aware now, climate change is not just something that may happen in the future. It's something that's very much with us now. We've all experienced wherever we are, whether you live in a tiny little village in Bangladesh or whether you live in Kentucky, you know what flooding is now. And we've experienced extreme heat this year. We've experienced drought. We've experienced people dying in Italy because of glacier melt that suddenly caused a huge collapse of a glacier there in the middle of the summer. These sorts of accidents, these sorts of disasters are happening because of climate change and they're only going to get worse. And as the planet heats over the coming decades, we're not just having to adapt to climate change, we're having to come to terms with something that is very little spoken about. And it's really not spoken about in the public discourse at all, which is what happens when you cannot adapt to climate change. And that's going to be the reality for huge numbers of people living in vast swathes of our world, especially across the tropical belt. It's going to become too hot. The coastal erosion is going to become too severe. The flash floods are going to become too catastrophic. The crop failures are going to become too regular for people to stay there. They're going to have to move. And what are we going to do about that? No one's talking about it. And it feels like an absolute devastating future for us if we don't plan. And that's why I wanted to write Nomad Century, because this is really my pragmatic look at the coming decades of how we can manage this reality, which no one's talking about, and make it work for us as a global population. And by the end of the century, I hope that we have restored our planet's habitability. We've restored the natural world, which we've so damaged. And we've brought back a sense of society, a sense of a way of living with our changed climate, which works for all of us. I mean, that's my dream. <laughs> you write in the introduction that for every one degree centigrade that the climate increases, one billion people are displaced. And the projection is, according to the UN International Organization for Migration, 1.5 billion environmental migrants by 2050. I notice that you choose to use the term migrant rather than refugee, climate migrant. Is there a reason that you made that choice? I think that what we've done is we've added, we've, we've sort of imposed moral values to the idea of moving around, which to me is, is not just crazy, but it's, it's actually unethical. It's perfectly legitimate to move around, whether, you know, you probably don't live in the house where you were born right? That's you correct. Yeah, you probably don't even live in the same town you've born. We move all the time for work, for love, for curiosity and adventure. We move because there's no room anymore for our lives in the village or the house that we were born. And that's completely normal. And quite often we cross borders to do that. And that's always happened throughout history. We also move because somewhere becomes 
more unpleasant. We're sort of pushed, the, the push and the pull. So we're pushed away because house prices are too high or we can't get insurance. Now, the reason we can't get insurance might be because this area keeps getting flooded or the violent storms keep coming in. Or we might move because all of the stores are closing down because the rest of the population is moving or it's just too difficult to live there. And these are not the extreme disasters that, say, Ukrainians had to experience when the Russians invaded, for example, where they are classed as refugees because their homes were bombed. But nevertheless, they are, in a sense, refugees from the world that they lived in, because we now live in an increasingly different world where temperatures exceed what they were normally before, where we can't rely on the rains to water our crops and, and those sorts of things. And in some places, that just becomes gradually drip, 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 more difficult and more unpleasant. And there are places where you have a better future. And so you move for that reason. So are you a refugee? Are you a migrant? I mean, these distinctions, I think, are different. I mean, increasingly, people will actually be what we would now class as refugees. They're so desperate, they have no choice. But there will also be people who move before they have no choice, pragmatically. And what I want to do with, with this book is plan a managed mass migration, because this is happening, whether we like it or not. This is inevitable now. Large numbers of people will have to move because of the hotter world that we're creating. But I think it would be a lot better if we planned that and managed it so that people moved before they were desperate people washing up on a boat or clambering through a, a desert in an absolutely desperate state. I think it would be much better if people moved with the assistance of cities that are set up to accept and receive them with the benefit of a job already ready for them, with schools ready for children, with healthcare already factored in, so that the societies don't feel overwhelmed when enormous numbers of people turn up, and so that people can make a positive contribution to the societies that they end up in, these host societies, because some people will be moving to expanding cities in the far north, whether they're moving from Florida to Minnesota, or whether they're moving to Churchill, Manitoba, or whether indeed they're moving from Bihar in India to Alaska. They'll be moving to cities that already exist, but they will also be helping build completely new cities because the scale of this migration is something that humanity has never seen before. But it is perfectly possible to do this in a way that creates positive, vibrant new societies, but only if we plan and manage it. And that means talking about it and getting ready for it now. Guy Vince, you do note some of the models that have already been done, including the Spain model. Would you let our listeners know some of the attributes of that? Yeah, so Spain has taken, it took a much more enlightened view, I guess, of migration. So just for context, most societies, particularly in the global north, the wealthier societies, actually have this real demographic shortfall. 
a demographic issue where people are just not having enough babies to support the elderly population. So we have an aging population that's living a lot longer, but not necessarily working a lot longer and maybe living with disability as they get older. People are not dying anymore at four score years and 10. As a result, what's happening is We've gone past what we used to live for. So what's happening is we're facing an absolute crisis where we just don't have enough workers. We've already seen the problems that that creates after the disruption of the COVID pandemic, where there aren't enough farm workers, there aren't enough hospitality workers, there aren't enough care workers and healthcare workers. It's it's an absolute disaster in a lot of these countries. And the way around that is through immigration. That's the best way around it. And a lot of countries have realised this. Canada, for example, is planning on tripling its population over the next few decades. So what happened with Spain is it decided to regulate its immigration So Spain is just across the Mediterranean Sea from North Africa. So a lot of very poor migrants come up from North Africa and then cross in boats and land in Spain as refugees or as migrants. And in a lot of countries, they end up in destitution or in illegal activities trying to make a living. Spain decided to welcome them as new citizens. They were given new citizenship. They were given help with housing and healthcare and given places in schools. And houses and apartments were created for these people in the outposts of various cities. One of them is Parler. And what happened with this incredible kind of project to really integrate these new citizens was that they actually felt like new citizens. They actually contributed much more. Migrants generally contribute much more per capita, especially if they're given the chance to work, than the native population per person. Their economic output is generally higher. They pay their taxes more. They don't take as many benefits. They don't commit as many crimes. And quite often they will uh, migrate back to their country of origin by the time they're old enough to receive elderly care benefits. So they're actually a massive net benefit to the host country. So economically, it makes sense to welcome immigrants and to give them as much opportunity to work as as they can. And when Europe entered a global recession, while protests and disruptive activity broke out in many other cities in Europe, in France, in Germany, where they hadn't been welcomed and they hadn't been given citizenship because they became so poor, they had no course to anything other than violence. In Spain, that didn't happen because they were Spanish. They felt Spanish. They felt part of this project, this project that Spain had of economic progress. And that's really interesting because what it means is that once you properly integrate someone, once somebody feels that they are included in the national project. They want to become a part of it. They want to help produce a better society because your needs are aligned. Everybody's everybody's working for the same thing. They want a functional economy. They want a better life for themselves and their children. But when you keep people apart and you treat them as though they are not part of this, then they are not part of it. And so, of course, they will feel resentful and be resented. 
Gaia, it seems to me that given the past of colonialism and the horrors of that and the impact that has had on the tropical regions primarily, and that's where the migrants will be coming from because that's the area that will become unlivable the fastest. How did Spain go about creating the consciousness that allowed for the welcoming of the migrants or refugees? Because I'm thinking now, particularly in the United States, the politics is such that one entire political party, major political party in the United States, chooses to refer to this situation as an invasion from the South rather than migration from the South. And they do that purposefully because they believe that it will further their political ends to attain power by making people afraid of migration coming to the United States, even though the European history of the United States is one of migration. So my question is, how did Spain go about transforming the consciousness of the people who are already citizens to welcome these newcomers? It's a good point. It's it's very easy for populist governments to create demons and to create otherness of a whole community. Because as soon as you do that, you then say that we are together included as the good guys and they are the bad guys. And so you have the in-group and the out-group. And it's a very easy and often used way for populist governments to create that bad guy and therefore draw some sort of cohesion around themselves. But in fact, of course, as you point out, the whole history of the United States is one of migration. First of all, there were no people on the continent. Then people migrated over from Asia. They were the first people that the Native American people who then peopled the whole of the North and South of America. And it wasn't for millennia that another group came uh, across by sea this time from Europe. And these migrating groups arrive somewhere and then declare that this is completely their land. (laughs) We've got a long history of that with the whole of humanity. We can do better. We can do much better than that. And we must do much better because what's happened is the number of people on this planet has now blossomed to 8 billion and is going to get greater whereas the habitable land on the planet has shrunken. So we need to be better at sharing what land we have. And nobody has any more right to it than anybody else. We've all got this mixed ancestry that originated in Africa two to 300,000 years ago. And variously, our ancestors have moved around. And by absolute luck of birth, we've ended up where we were born. But that should not define our safety in a climate-changed world. So, yes, in answer to your question, Spain made an actual conscious decision to drive the narrative that that migrants were useful to the economy, were culturally beneficial, were interesting people to add to our communities and societies and would be given the same rights as other Spanish people. And the reasons why they countered anti-migrant narratives, there were integration programs in schools and in community centres. There was a lot of effort that went into that and it paid off because 
a similar sort of thing actually in Germany when Germany accepted a million Syrian refugees they are in a much better position now because of that influx that new population to deal with the economic fallout from covid from the Ukrainian war and so on than countries that haven't accepted as many immigrants or refugees the US is completely dependent on its immigrant population for 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 its economy and for the functioning of huge sectors of the workforce and i think everybody is conscious of that even if they might may deny it and i mean first generation immigrants i mean if we start with second generation immigrants the whole country would collapse if they were withdrawn so it's done for conscious political reasons and these attitudes fall down very quickly if you challenge them using logic i would note just as an aside that former president trump is on one side of his family a first generation immigrant his mother immigrated from scotland and his grandfather immigrated from germany and both of them were part of the quote unquote chain migration because each of them came over and lived with their sisters as new immigrants so just as an exactly aside. exactly and he's married you know an, an immigrant you know i mean the whole thing is is so I mean, if you probe it in any way whatsoever, the whole thing falls apart because there's no logic to it. It's pure, emotive, political. It's completely deliberate politicization of a completely normal issue that we have of people moving around. And thank goodness people do move around because our entire societies are built on the fact that people move around. Otherwise, we would not have made any of the cultural or scientific or any of the progress that we've made. That like almost, you know, immigration really is that exchange of people and ideas and genes and technologies is is what has created us as a as an international species. And I've no doubt at all that although these climate driven migrations over the next century which are largely tragic actually because because to to be forced because of an unlivable environment to move is not the same as choosing to migrate i think more people should choose to migrate and move around because it's a great way of breaking down uh, social barriers but to be driven from your home by an unlivable environment is a tragedy but i have no doubt that these huge migrations will lead to explosions in scientific progress in cultural flowering and you know music new types of music new types of food as people move around and develop new ideas and exchange new ideas we are speaking with Gaia Vince her latest book just out is Nomad Century how climate migration will reshape our world Now Gaia you point out that so many of the things that we just consider given and the most natural thing in the world are actually human constructs namely the idea of even nation states or having borders these are relatively new things in our history only a couple of centuries old in many cases and so we should feel more comfortable in creating new constructs that actually benefit our current situation would you share with our listeners some of the ideas for these new constructs that you explore in your book nomad century 
Well, yeah, I mean, we, we all think this, that nations are sort of set in stone, but actually they are very recent. Most nations didn't exist before a couple of hundred years ago with the French Revolution or the Latin American revolutions. Before that, most places were sort of aligned with a leader like a king or so on, and they moved around, they changed as territory was like exchanged often very bloodily. But the idea that we kind of have, that these nations have always existed and, and have some sort of quality and then and that we have, by association, that quality is, is a myth. I mean, it is a story. But as we look forward and as we think about these uh, larger populations moving from one place to another, we, we are going to have to think about different ways of constructing states or constructing our geopolitical systems. And there are plenty of options that some of which have been tried before. So there's the idea of charter cities where the cities sort of have their own political legislation greater than they have at the moment. So they might, for example, have the governing power to decide on immigration. So the city of New York might have the power to admit a couple of hundred thousand more immigrants because it has more of a need rather than going to the federal legislation. And cities themselves will become much more powerful as we move away from a rural economy. We, we have already been making this big migration from rural living to urban living over the last sort of 200 years. And there's already more people living in cities than in the countryside. And by 2050, three quarters of the world's population will live in cities. By the end of the century, pretty much everyone will be living in a city because it's just a much more efficient way of living when you have limited resources. And that includes water, um, power and all of the other things we're going to have to supply in smaller geographical areas to larger populations. So these cities themselves will become increasingly important. If you look at Tokyo, which is a kind of joined up mega city, really, it's 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 really enormous. That has increasingly more power and it will I think, have more power in the future of be competing with, with other city-states. So the idea also that certain states might buy territory in other ones. So, I mean, you famously know that Alaska was bought from the Russians by the Americans in the 1800s. Well, we could increasingly see something like the nation of Bangladesh buying territory in Russia or buying parts of Siberia or Mongolia or something to found a city that would be run under their jurisdiction. Or maybe it would rent land like Britain rented Hong Kong, for example, from the Chinese for 99 years. Or like the drowning island of Kiribati is renting land from neighbouring Fiji so that its population has somewhere to farm as it increasingly falls underwater. So there, there are various options that can be discussed and, and we can, we will, you know, I don't think that one size will fit all. I don't think there's one answer to this problem of what happens when your country becomes unlivable for a large amount of the population and everybody has to move or large numbers of people will have to move. But we will have to come up with these answers in various ways. And I, I think we need to start the conversation. That's really what Nomad Century is about. It's about starting a conversation. I don't expect everybody who reads it to agree with my solutions. But I do hope that people start talking about, you know, how we deal with these, because that conversation really needs to be started now. 
Guy, I must congratulate you on how you don't pull back from the complexities of it. For example, I don't think I was really aware that as cities become bigger, they actually press down on the ground. So our coastal cities, as they get bigger and bigger, they're actually sinking as the sea rises. I mean, just things like yeah. that. So it's, it's a joint, it's a joint, it's a sort of two pronged attack. What happens is there's a lot of excavation underneath the city for sewage works, for basements, for tube uh, underground train tracks and all that sort of thing. So there's that excavation that happens, plus the weight, the sheer weight of these very tall, largely concrete and steel constructions which are hundreds, thousands of tons pushing down on the earth. And the the actual effect of that is for them to sink, especially as water is extracted from that soil. You know, the water, which is kind of making a lot of that, that ground more buoyant, that as that water is extracted, you get more sinking and then you get the erosion. And so some of these cities are sinking at phenomenal rates. Mexico City, for example, parts of Indonesia, Jakarta is is huge problems with that. And of course, we all know about New Orleans, which is a slightly different um, situation. It says on a delta, you know. So, so a lot of these cities are becoming really unlivable quite quickly and their basements are flooding. New York had uh, real problems a couple of years ago when storm waters I mean, it gets regularly flooded in the in the subway system now, but stormwaters were killing people in basement apartments who couldn't get out in time. And we're just going to see more of this. And it's it's it is an inequality issue as well, because the wealthier people are more likely to have protection against these sorts of events. And the poorer people end up in the in the more impacted areas. Yes, and in the recent floods in Seoul, South Korea, the same phenomenon of people living in unpermitted basements, flooding, dying. And my understanding is that those non-permitted basement dwellings in New York are re-inhabited again simply because of housing pressures. That's why we need this whole problem needs to be managed and planned for rather than what happens at the moment is we just sort of like veer from one crisis to another and sort of react to many deaths or react to a terrible disaster. We need to, these are not huge surprises. These have been predicted. And we now have very, very accurate models that can predict really well to small areas what will happen. And we need to actually plan and manage this. We, we, you know, we are living in a new climatic era now. We need to we need to plan for this. We shouldn't be in a situation where people are living in very dangerous housing in the wealthiest nations in the world. The last part of your book, Gaia, deals with restoration. You're not just saying, let's plan for the worst. You're saying, let's make the worst better at the same time. And you point out that It's really important that we grieve what we have lost. And in a recent interview with Stan Rushworth, indigenous people in North America are saying we have to experience, allow ourselves to experience echo sorrow. And I think that's really important because 
unless and until we do, there's this blockage to anything to do about it. Would you expand on that, please? Yeah, I, I get the sense a lot of us are living in a kind of denial. I mean, what we're facing is extreme. It is extraordinary. We are living through a time which is going to get much worse, much more violent weather, much more unpredictable weather where we can't rely on food prices staying in the range that we can afford, power, all sorts of things. There is a lot of uncertainty and it's very frightening. We do need to, instead of burying our heads in the sand about it, we need to face up to it. We need to realise, yes, this is true. It is happening and it is appalling and it is really upsetting. And we do need to grieve. And then we need to get through that process and we need to realise that we're the ones that created this. But fortunately, we are also the ones that can bring us out of this. You know, this book is not a pessimistic book. It's pragmatic, but it's also very optimistic. I am saying we can, if we plan, if we manage this, we can bring ourselves out of this horror, this horrific situation, and we can produce a world that is better. And that starts by accepting accepting the horror, planning for how we deal with it, and then starting the repair work. And that is going to take time. So let's start it right now. It means cutting our carbon emissions and completely transforming our food, the way we produce our food and what we eat, our power supplies, our cities, where and how we live, our transport systems. And it also means bringing back the health to the natural world. We have exploited the natural world to such an extent that it can no longer save us from our folly. In the past, however much we destroyed nature, it normally revived itself and got us out of our mess. Now we've put it in such a perilous state. We've chopped down so many trees. We've um, poisoned the atmosphere and the oceans and the water supplies that actually... It's so unhealthy, the extinction rate is so high that it, it cannot, it doesn't have the health to restore, to clean our water, to, to reduce the carbon from the atmosphere. It's, it's failing. It's going to, you know, we're, we're tipping forest states into savannah states. We're tipping savannah states into desert states. And that's a really alarming prospect. And what we need to do is restore the natural world, bring back the healthiness of our planet so that at the same time as cutting back our destructive activities, and then the planet itself will do most of the job, to be honest. If you don't actually actively destroy forests and you don't allow them to tip into other states like a savannah, grassland, prairie state, then forests will revive, they will restore, and we will get fewer forest fires, we will get more damp forests coming back if we cut back our emissions. We can restore this situation. And I hope that by the end of the century, we are in a state of restoration, where people who have had to migrate from unlivable areas in the tropics can go back to those areas, those areas will become livable again, the rains will fall again. The forest fires will not be as severe. They will cut back. But, you know, we need to start that work right now because we're in danger of overshooting that. And that will require negative emissions activities. And 
I have to say, yeah. Gaia, before I read your book, I was, well, I continue to be, but you sort of have ameliorated the issue around geoengineering because you point out we already are geoengineering with fossil fuel use and pollution and the kinds of land use that we have been doing over the last couple of hundred years. So the issue isn't whether or not we should do geoengineering. We already are doing that. The question now is, should we do it consciously to attain a state of negative emissions activity? So share with our listeners some of the proposals that you explore that you think are most possible and likely to be of use. Yeah, I mean, it's true. We we are geoengineering. We are changing the planet so fundamentally that we're tipping it from one geological era, the Holocene, which is what we should be in, to the Anthropocene, the age of humans. And we have increased the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere to such an extent, and our economies are continuing to increase the emissions to such an extent that the temperature will continue to rise unless we also, as well as stopping emissions, unless we also withdraw carbon from the atmosphere. There are many ways to do that. One, the, the, the way nature does it is through biology, through photosynthesis. So forests and sea algae and other oceanic marshlands and other plants, which absorb an enormous amount of our carbon emissions all the time. We're destroying their ability to do that all the time. So that's what I was talking about when I said we need to restore the health of the planet's biology. But we need to increase that. We need to do something more. And there are many ways of withdrawing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. One of the most popular for people to be excited about is these boxes, carbon dioxide removal boxes, but they use an enormous amount of energy and they're not proven at scale. And we need them. We need we need to try all of these things because we are in a desperate situation, but I don't put much store by those. The geology of the planet also does it. So as rocks and mountainsides weather, as the rocks react with the carbon dioxide in the damp air, they chemically combine with the carbon dioxide and lock it away. So that's another way. It's called rock weathering. And that's another way we can enhance rock weathering by crushing up rocks. And that's something that's done anyway in mining activities and other exploration. We crush a lot of rocks. Some are better than others. Olivine, for example, which is very common, is very, co is very good at doing that. And we can then apply those crushed rocks to beaches or to farmers' fields where they're, they're actually very good at enhancing crop growth as well. So you get double effort there. That's something I personally would like to see much, much greater effort put towards. Tree planting initiatives are very popular as well and they have mixed success because the problem is you can do your tree planting, but you've also got to make sure those trees survive and live and don't burn down or don't die from lack of watering and are not cared for, basically. And unfortunately, that happens a lot. And tree planting is double counted. You know, one company is paying to plant trees at the same time another company is paying to plant trees and it's the same trees being planted. So you're not getting double the trees. More interesting, I think, is increasing phytoplankton, so sea algae, the oceans 
natural algal blooms that happen far out in the southern oceans, which feed whales eventually. Enhancing that is something that scientists are looking at. That's never been done at scales by scientists. It's been done naturally. So we don't know how well that would work, but that's something that could also increase the amount of carbon that's drawn down into the bottom ocean layers, which would also help with ocean acidification, which is a huge problem that's killing corals and other shell-building organisms. But in terms of reducing the temperature, when the temperatures get very high and they will get higher, you know, we're already experiencing extreme temperatures in places where we live now rather than just in deserts. To reduce those, there are ways of reflecting back the sun's rays using sulfates, which can be sprinkled or sprayed into the stratosphere, one of the top layers of our atmosphere. And they would very successfully reflect back the sun's rays and reduce temperatures. And that could be something that is useful while carbon is being actively removed because it would make everything else easier. Sulfates are already emitted massively in the lower atmosphere where they're a huge problem for people's health, for lungs. So in shipping, for example, there's a lot of that sooty, those sooty clouds. And in the lower atmosphere, that's a huge problem and it's an enormous amount of sulfates that are released. What I'm talking about is a tiny, tiny fraction of that up in the higher stratosphere where it's not a health hazard and where it doesn't last very long and would have to be replaced constantly. Again, that hasn't been tried and certainly not at scale, but I would like to see experiments into that for sure. I noticed that China is among the places that is experiencing temperature increases as well as droughts and rivers are running dry. They depend on hydropower for a lot of their non-fossil fuel energy sources. And as the need for the energy goes up, there's less and less of it from that. They are restricting factories from producing The factories are having to shut down by decree because of the lack of power. And they are shooting up rockets with silver iodides to seed clouds. And that's kind of controversial because it does seem to work sometimes, but it remains to be seen whether it's disrupting the climate elsewhere in the process. So at the moment, there is no oversight on any of this. And I think that we need a global body with oversight on who's doing what, because you're right, if you take the clouds from one place... Um, And by the way, the United States is doing a lot of this as well, seeding clouds and making them rain in one place and not others, sometimes just for things like increasing skiing in certain slopes. So this is a real problem because neighbouring countries, you know, it's the same as the battles that we're having on the actual ground about who has rights to river flows. These are effectively the atmospheric rivers and, you know, none of us have ownership or should have ownership over water in the sky. But as our technological prowess increases and improves, increasingly we have the power to decide where and how it rains. And I think these are some of the battles that we will be experiencing over the coming decades as rain becomes scarcer and people become more desperate. Um, Who does a cloud belong to? It's pretty terrifying. This is why we need to plan now and we need to manage the resources in a strategically shared way 
so that we anticipate these problems as they come. We don't, we don't just deal with them when they become catastrophic. Most of our listeners are familiar with the efforts, if not the success, of the International Panel on Climate Change. What bodies have been created and what in your vision needs to be created internationally and globally to do things such as you just mentioned? Well, yeah, I mean, I would like to see a proper international body looking at migration. There is one, but it's pretty toothless. It doesn't have proper oversight and it doesn't have true powers. So a proper a proper organisation that looked at international migration was able to, as this becomes much more of a huge decision, as, as big disasters hit several countries concurrently and simultaneously in entire regions and large numbers of people need to move, ideally they would be moved with safety and fairly to um, and allocated to different countries so that one country isn't suddenly overwhelmed with this enormous refugee burden because it just happens to be neighbouring. And it was planned a lot better according to the labour markets, according to the different economies and that countries were compensated for taking large numbers of families, say, that needed help. And it was just managed a lot better. At the moment, it's normally managed by individual countries trying to generally keep out the refugees that they're legally obliged to take because they've signed up to the asylum charters that mean that they they are legally obliged to take refugees, but they don't. And they're really regarded as a security issue, which is crazy. You know, they're not a security issue. This is a labour issue and a humanitarian issue. Gaia Vince, you end your book, Nomad Century, How Climate Migration Will Reshape Our World, with a manifesto. And some of it we have already discussed, but what do you wish to leave with our listeners from your manifesto? Oh, well, I want people to understand that migration is a completely natural human behavior. It's a survival adaptation, which we have evolved with, and it could actually be our salvation. And if it's managed well, instead of this, these coming decades being completely chaotic and catastrophic, they could actually be better. They could actually be fairer, more productive. We could actually improve our world. We could allow parts of our planet, the wilderness, to heal and to protect us and restore biodiversity. The ideology of the last few centuries has been one of competition. But you point out that that's not the greater portion of humanity's experience on the planet it couldn't have been because we wouldn't have survived. It was one of cooperation and collaboration. Final words for our listeners, Gaia Vince, before we have to say goodbye. Yeah, we completely, we are the cooperative, we are the social ape. And the reason that we are so successful is because we rely on each other and we we rely on each other with good reason, we can depend on each other. And it's cooperation that has got us to become this incredible super species that has changed the planet. It's cooperation with each other, our kinship, which will allow us 
to get out of this mess and restore our planet and our societies to good health. Well, Gaia Vince, thank you once again for joining us on Forthright Radio and for the work you put into creating this book, Nomad Century, How Climate Migration Will Reshape Our World. We very much appreciate it. Thanks so much, Joy. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. You have just heard an interview with Gaia Vince about her book, Nomad Century, How Climate Migration Will Reshape Our World. We note that on July 26, 2022, scientist, inventor, creator of the Gaia theory, James Lovelock, died on his 103rd birthday. On his 100th birthday, Gaia Vince spoke at the University of Exeter celebrating his life and ideas. We hear excerpts from her talk, followed by excerpts from a video produced then by The Economist. Links to both can be found on our website, forthright.media. And as always, the views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire, and you can hear past forthright radio programs by going to our website forthright.media thanks very much for coming to this amazing three-day event to celebrate basically me Um, (laughs) i'm incredibly honored the goddess thanks you all very much for coming so for me gaia is very much about perspective how we get perspective on anything on our planet Imagine six blind people, you probably already know this story, they're taken up to this huge object and told to decipher what they're experiencing and each one comes up with something else, one's seeing a knife, a snake, a spear, etc. And this is the perspective that most of us have on our environment intuitively because we experience it through our senses directly. If we think about our environment from that small perspective, of course, we're getting a distorted view of what's actually out there. And it can be very difficult to get this global perspective. And so this is something that I think absolutely changed 50 years ago on Christmas Eve when the Apollo 8 shot this incredible, iconic photograph and showed our planet as this this jewel, this, this complete object. You can see the clouds swirling, you can see the blueness, you can see that that is where life is within this limited frame and everywhere else is dead. It's just nothing. It's dead. So that gives us a different perspective. And I think that over the next decade, as Lovelock came up with this theory, I think that this different perspective that we have as the Earth being a living system really comes out of, out of the visual as well. This idea that before that, we didn't ever see our planet like that. And once we do think of the Earth as a system, once we gain that exterior perspective of course we can see other things with our eyes we can really see there's some hurricanes going across the Atlantic we can really see how these systems interconnect that they're not discrete that the ocean is connected to the atmosphere is connected to life and the geology below and we can see it in real time get a different perspective of our planet because we see that they are interconnected systems and It's the synergy. It's the synergy which I think is important there. So now we're very used to, of course, seeing how all these interact, how the physical systems of our planet interact with the biological and the geological. So that's dust. 
actually we can see it going across the Atlantic from the Sahara and that is feeding the Amazon which then produces the hydrology. And so we, we see all this as a system. For me that's what Gaia gives us. It gives us this different way of thinking about our planet. We can still use imagery, but we can now see our planet differently because the system, the systemic interconnected systems are now being affected by one of the living components of that, which is, of course, us. And we are part of that ecology. We're part of the natural world. When I drink my peppermint tea... I'm using the geology of the planet. I'm drinking the water, which then goes into my body, becomes part of my cells. I'm part of the ocean. I'm part of the hydrology, the hurricanes. I'm part of all of that. We're all part of this big living system. But we are now moving beyond that equilibrium, this self-regulating system, that idea of a self-regulating system. We're pushing that beyond. I don't know where we will reach an eventual equilibrium but will it be in a place where humans are being supported this is james lovelock and he's just turned a hundred years old he believes artificial intelligence or so-called cyborgs could take control cool the planet and allow the human species to survive james lovelock's work has changed the way scientists look at everything from the common cold to life on mars He invented a device that detected ozone-damaging CFCs in the atmosphere all around the world, a precursor to the detection of holes in the ozone layer. James Lovelock's revolutionary insights about the Earth behaving like a living being, a single, complex, self-regulating system, reframed the way environmentalists understand the Earth. He named the idea after the ancient Greek goddess of Earth, Gaia. Gaia is the name given to the system of organisms that live on the Earth and maintain its climate suitable for life. But James Lovelock's Gaia is no kindly goddess protecting humankind from itself. He argues that humans have pushed Gaia to its limit. And whilst the Earth will eventually rebalance itself, it may be too late for the human race. Unless humans start making drastic changes. Humans have many options if they want to save themselves and the planet. This is his four-point plan to save humankind. By 2050, 140 million people could be forced to migrate within their countries because of climate change. But why wait? James Lovelock believes land that will be made uninhabitable should be abandoned now. Humans should retreat to efficient, safe climate-controlled cities. Humans should go to megacities if they want to avoid the worst dangers of climate change, mainly because a city is a smaller unit to control and regulate the composition of the atmosphere, the soil. Rather similar to the nests of invertebrates of various kinds, ants, wasps, bees, whereas the open space of the planet itself is huge and not easy to handle. According to James Lovelock, humans need to rethink the way they power the world, ditching fossil fuels and switching not just to renewable, but to nuclear power. If we want to avoid damaging the planet by our way of life, do not burn fuel unnecessarily. We should be using nuclear power now as our main source of energy. 
Fears around nuclear energy have been compounded by disasters like Chernobyl and Fukushima. But for James Lovelock, these fears remain misplaced. The extraordinary thing is it is the safest way of producing electricity. The death rate for in the power stations that use nuclear is way, way, way below that in any of the other forms, including renewables. Global warming may be the biggest threat facing humanity. Attempts to cut carbon emissions are too small to reduce carbon dioxide levels. James Lovelock thinks climate-controlling technology, called geoengineering, could be the answer. I rather like Teller's idea, the inventor of the hydrogen bomb, which is the sunshade. It's a kind of mesh screen that goes out into a heliocentric orbit around the sun and shields the Earth and the sun a percent of the sun's radiation. But there's another way to build a sunshade inside the Earth's atmosphere. In 1991, a volcanic eruption in the Philippines had a profound effect on the world. The gas cloud it produced reached the stratosphere cooling the world by as much as 0.5 degrees Celsius for four years. The simplest thing was really to mimic volcanoes and put sulphur gases into the stratosphere to form a haze that blocks off sunshine. And that would prevent overheating from the sun. James Lovelock's boldest prescription emerges from his belief that the Earth is on the verge of a new era one where the dominant form of life is artificial. I'm not concerned just with the evolution of lumps of flesh that can move around and do things managed by a somewhat primitive intelligence. No, I think it's the evolution of intelligence that is the key driver in the Darwinian process. He believes artificial intelligence, cyborgs, will move beyond human control generating intelligences far greater than our own. They will be far more capable than humans of tackling climate change. I would hope that cyborgs would do a much better job of protecting the planet than humans have done because they can think 10,000 times faster. If they work strenuously hard to keep the temperature of the planet at a safe and desirable point, it would benefit them and enormously benefit us. If the human race is to survive, James Lovelock believes the key is for it to surrender its position of privilege and give way to more intelligent life. We might think that cyborgs would be very bored with humans and wouldn't want to watch them at all because they're so boring. But then I would say, but you go to Kew Gardens, don't you, to watch the plants grow. Do I think humans can be saved from the numerous threats that exist in the cosmos? I don't know. I hope so. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.